Take a look at this picture. This is a stone found in a cave in the north of Israel in the Galil. An underground cave with this inscription. If you know a little Hebrew, you can read it with me. It says, Zu, right there, Zu Shel Rav Gamliel. That's the top line in modern day Hebrew letters. The bottom line is in Greek. Zu Shel Rabbi Gamliel. The stone is about 1800 years old. This inscription, this is of Rabbi Gamliel. We will get back to this stone and this inscription a little later. Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, 12.15. Time for our weekly lunch and learn session. Every Tuesday we get together for a study session of 60 minutes or so once we get started. And it's been about five months that we've been studying together virtually on Facebook Live every Tuesday at 12.15. So, let's get ready to begin. Just a moment or two, I'll make a bracha for my lunch. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Malach HaOilam She'akol Niyah B'Zvari Hi Jody, hi Roy, hi Amy. They are joining on. Just give another moment for some others uh, to come on as we get ready to begin our uh, weekly uh, session. If you saw that inscription um, I zoomed in on before, just fascinating the things that the archeologists are finding nowadays. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it, how it relates to uh, today's, uh, today's topic. Every week is another topic. Good afternoon, Judy and uh, Ira. Uh, we are excited to begin Lunch and Learn number 103. Each lesson is independent from the other. It's not a continuation, the topics. Today we're going to look at some Jewish history and focus in on one uh, unique personality um, in the Jewish story going back about 1800 years ago. <clears throat> the, you know, there are different ways, different, to um, different topics in Torah study. Every week we do another topic, and we've been doing here and there um, different personalities. We studied about Elijah, we studied about Maimonides, we studied about Rabbi Akiva, we studied about Hillel. Today we're going to study about a man named Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda, uh, commonly known as Rebbe. Rebbe means the teacher. The, even without his name, without saying Rabbi Yehuda, just Rebbe, plain Rebbe is known, he is known as just the teacher. He's just the teacher of the Jewish people, and we'll learn why. He's also referred to as Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy master. He was extremely pious, and he's referred to as Rabbeinu HaKadosh. He's also referred to as, as the Nasi, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the prince the leader. These are some of the names that he is referred to as and some of the quotes that we have here on our, on our source sheet. Sometimes he's quoted as Rebbe, sometimes Rabbi Yehuda, sometimes Rabbi Judah the Prince or Yehuda the Prince uh, or the Holy, our Holy Master. Either way, it's the same person. It's a great rabbi who lived uh, 
uh, about 1800 years ago and we're going to divide today's lesson into four sections as we usually do on our source sheet. We will look at um, his beginning, his relationship with Rome. Uh, the Roman Emperor will look at the um, second section, his, his uh, piety, his wealth, moving on to describing his passing and mainly the, third, the fourth section describing his achievements, his scholarly works, and of course, the stories, the anecdotes are there to teach us. These are stories that were recorded in the Talmud, in Midrash. Not every story was recorded. These are stories that were chosen to be recorded because they contain life lessons for us, even though we're living 1,800 years later. The stories um, and the teachings are relevant to us today. They're practical for us. We're going to try to uh, extract that. And of course, it's not uh, his entire, everything that there is about him written, but this is just a glimpse into his life of this uh, remarkable rabbi and teacher. So join me for this 60-minute uh, lesson. Hopefully you have your source sheet. If you didn't see it in the email, you can download it or print it out from the link at, on this post. Uh, you can take a moment to share this so others can join in as well and benefit from the Torah that's being taught here. That's what we do. We're here to study Torah together. Okay. So here we go. We're on our on our uh, source sheet. <clears throat> okay, so source number one: the sun rises and the sun sets. This is a quote from Ecclesiastes, a, a, a pasuk, in uh, a verse from the from the from the uh, scriptures. The sun rises and the sun sets. Question is. Don't we know that the sun rises and goes down? I mean, that verse doesn't have to tell that to us. It's a book of wisdom telling us all kinds of pieces of advice and, and, and uh, uh, wise words. Why is the verse telling us you should know the sun rises and the sun sets? I mean, everybody knows that. Tells us the Midrash, what does it mean the sun rises? Excuse me, and the sun sets? Rather, this is what it means. When God causes the sun of a righteous person to set, he causes the son of his fellow, son as S-U-N, the son of his fellow, meaning the shining, the illuminary, to shine forth. The day that Rabbi Akiva died, our Rabbi Yehuda the Prince was born. So the sun is not, when the verse says the sun rises and the sun sets, it's not referring to the actual sun, that everybody knows that the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening. It's referring to somebody who brings light, who brings guidance, brings direction, brings inspiration to the Jewish people. So when it's time for the sun to set, every generation has its sun, has its leader, its, uh, who illuminates their minds and hearts. Before the sun sets, the sun rises. God prepares the next leader, the next sun, the next beacon of light for the coming generation. The sun rises. When the next sun rises, then the sun, the previous sun, can set. In Hebrew, Hashemesh, the sun begins to shine, and then Uvo Hashemesh, then the sun comes and sets. This refers to, the Midrash says, to Rebbe, we'll call him Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda, Rebbe being born the day that Rabbi Akiva died. A couple months ago we discussed the life of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was 
was killed, he was mur murdered by the Romans in about the year 135 during the Bar Kokhva rebellion, or, or uh, right after, in the year 135 of the Common Era. And on that day, on that day, Rebbe was born. His parents were Rabbi Shimon and his wife. They had a baby boy. Rebbe was born. On the day Rebbe was set, he was the sun that was rising. On the day that the son of Rabbi Akiva passed, already the next future leader, the next son, the luminary, was rising. He was born. And so too the Midrash says in many generations, before Moshe died, before Moses died, he appointed Yoshua, his successor, to begin to guide the Jewish people. Before Eli, the Kohen, um, passed on, he anointed Shemuel, Samuel, to be the, new, the, the, the next prophet and leader of the Jewish people. And so too, in many generations, God provides um, leaders. God provides the, the, the proper sun to shine in the future generation. And so too it is with the topic of today's lesson, Rebbe. Rebbe passed. Rebbe was born on the day that Rabbi Akiva passed. And Rabbi uh, Rebbe was, as you see here in the Midrash, he was known as the Prince, Judah the Prince. Hi, Howie. Judah the Prince, why was, he a, why was he called the Prince? Eventually became the Prince. But his father, Rabbi Shimon, who was a descendant of Hillel. We mentioned another lesson about Hillel. Hillel the Babylonian who came up from, ba from Bava, from Babylonia, during the Second Temple Era. This is going back before Rabbi Akiva, a few generations back in the times of Herod. And Hillel became the Nasi, became the, the supreme judge, if you can say, the head of the court, the head of the, of the Jewish court, and not just the head of the spiritual uh, affairs, but also the political affairs, also uh, being, the, being the leader of the, of the Jewish people in all, in, all, um, in all areas. Hillel lived during the Roman Emperor Herod, who was ruling the land of Israel. Rabbi Akiva lived in the times of Hadrian, 200 years later. Hadrian, um, after crushing the rebellion, of our Kochva rebellion, began to forbid the religion. He realized that the strength of the Jewish people is in, the, in, the, in their spirituality, in the religion, and following Torah. And one of the things, and that was, it was a very extremely terrible time for the Jewish people during the Hadrian rule, the Roman Emperor Hadrian, and one of the things they outlawed was the, performing a bris circumcision on Jewish baby boys. And when Rebbe was born, the day that Rabbi Akiva was killed, it was still during those very difficult times. And it was forbidden to perform a circumcision. Rebbe's father, Rabbi Shimon, was then the Nasi, was then the leader of the Jewish court. And Although he, there, there was uh, severe consequences for those that disobeyed and did perform circumcision, secretly they did so because the fear of heaven, the awe of heaven is, was more precious to them, was more important to them. And they performed the bris on their baby boy and he was named Yehuda secretly. But word got out and the Roman officials were informed that Rabbi Shimon, the leader of the Jewish people, disobeyed, transgressed the command of the Roman emperors not to uh, perform circumcisions 
and he was summoned, his father, Rabbi Shimon, was summoned to the governor of his town. And he said to him, how dare you perform a bris? Even though Rabbi Shimon was respected for his, for his greatness, being a great man. And he said, I did what God wants, you know, the king of all kings. And he said, well, if you're going to perform the circumcision and not get punished, then if there will be no consequences, then everybody will follow suit. I have to send you to the high court in Rome. So Rabbi Shimon and his wife set out to Rome with their baby boy, Yehuda, and one of the places they stayed over when they got to Rome before heading to the palace of the court was um, the house of a, of a non-Jewish couple. And they got talking, the mother of, of, of Yehuda and, the, and this other woman of the home, the hostess, and it came out that this woman, the hostess, gave birth to a baby boy on the same day that she gave birth to Yehuda. And she tells him, you know why we're in Rome, we're from Israel, you know why we're here? Because we did a circumcision and who knows what's, what's in store for us once we get to the palace. So the woman told her, why don't we switch babies? They're the same age, they were born on the same day. My baby is not circumcised, take him and hopefully God will be with you and you will be spared. And that's what she did. Yehuda's mother took the uncircumcised baby of her newfound friend and with Rabbi Shimon, her husband, went to the palace and they were, um, you know, told to, it was told to the emperor at this, that this Jewish family performed the circumcision. And he said, let's examine the baby. Let's see what happened. They opened the baby and there's no bris. There's no circumcision. And the emperor was not very happy. He said, I decree that only circumcised babies should be brought before me for punishment. What are you bringing me on circumcised babies? Let's take a look at source number two, how this story is recorded in the Tosfas, which is one of the commentaries on the Talmud, going back uh, a thousand years ago. Source two, the governor who had brought them before the emperor exclaimed, I myself can testify to having seen that the child was circumcised. I was in Israel at the time and I saw... But what shall I do if their God performs miracles for them all the time? The emperor summarily rescinded the decree forbidding circumcision. It's a beautiful story of the self-sacrifice, the daring, the, the, the courage that Yehuda's parents, Rabbi Shimon and his wife, had to perform a bris even during the Hadrian times, the decrees, when there was terrible suffering. And the same day that he was born, Rabbi Kiva was murdered in a terrible, torturous way. And the, and the great, uh, you know, they, they encountered this couple, that, this mother, and on their way back from the, from the court, they exchanged their babies back and they headed back to Israel. And the mother told Yehuda's mother, they said, because a miracle, because you were saved, your baby was saved, because a miracle occurred through, uh, through us, let us be friends forever and let our boys be, friend, be friends. This boy ended up growing up to be Antoninus. Antoninus, Anton, Antoninus Pius, um, in the Talmud is referred to as Antoninus. Some um, say that this actually is referring to, I think it was his successor, Marcus Aurelius, who was the Roman emperor after Antoninus. These grew, they grew up, whoever it was, to become the next Roman emperor. And indeed, there was a very uh, close relationship between Rebbe, Rebbe Yehuda, and Antoninus. That's how we'll refer to him, Antoninus. 
the leader of the Jewish people and the Roman emperor, <coughs> the leader of the, of the Roman Empire, which extended over the land of Israel. Rebbe uh, was the seventh generation from Hillel. Hillel, he was a great-great-grandson of Hillel. Hillel had a son Shimon, Shimon had a son Gamliel, he had a son Shimon, Gamliel, and Shimon, and then came Rebbe. He was the seventh generation. The seventh, gen the seventh like Shabbos. He was the seventh in the, being the prince in this um, dynasty of leading the Jewish people. The seventh. The seventh is like Shabbos. When Shabbos comes, Ba Shabbos, has the Midrash, Ba Menucha, tranquility and peace comes with the day of Shabbos. With the Rebbe's arrival, the Hadrian the decrees were rescinded. Antoninus um, gave a period of respite for the Jewish people, of calm. They didn't last too long until the next Roman emperor came and things, you know, didn't, always, didn't uh, eventually escalated. But definitely Rebbe's times was a peaceful era and that enabled him to uh, change the Jewish world, as we will see as we move along. Rebbe was the seventh generation. It was a time of peace. Those decrees were, were um, taken away, definitely eased up, and Jewish life began to flourish once again in the land of Israel. Let's take a look at source number three. Uh, hi, Mark and Gary. Nice to everyone joining. You can download the source sheet to follow along. We're here for our Lunch and Learn, learning about a great personality, Rebbe, Rebbe Yehuda. Rebbe Yehuda was born, as, 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 in, as we mentioned, in 135, and we're most of his life, you know, during the second century, when he became the, the Nasi, was during the second half of the second century. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between Rebbe and this man, the Roman Emperor Antoninus. Antoninus was very kind to the Jewish people and uh, especially to Rebbe the Talmud says that he would send they were you know he was extremely wealthy being the Roman Emperor and he would send sacks of crushed gold to Rebbe being the leader of the Jewish people political leader the rabbi everything all together and he would send it with a messenger but he would put some uh, wheat kernel a lot of wheat kernels on the top of the sack so the guards don't realize what's going on and he would keep sending these sacks of gold so source 3 that tells us Rebbe said I do not need gold I has I have plenty Rebbe as we'll see was a wealthy man uh, independently I don't need your gold why are you sending them to me I mean I appreciate your gifts but I have enough Antonino said the gold should be for those who will come after you to pay taxes to the Romans from this money. He knew that the next Roman leader, the next emperor, the one down the line is not going to be so, so kind or fond of the Jewish people. And there's going to be heavy taxes. So he says, here you go. Here's the money. Keep this. And eventually, if the time comes, when the time comes, that they demand these high taxes, you will have the cash, you will have the gold to be able to pay those high taxes. Source number four, Antoninus had a certain underground cave from which there was a tunnel that went from his house to the house of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. That's another term of Judah the prince. The Nasi is the prince. And he would come secretly to study Torah from Rebbe. 
you have to do it secretly because a Roman emperor studying Torah from a great rabbi is not going to be looked at so nicely in the eyes of the Romans. But yet, he was a philosopher. Uh, he wrote, uh, I believe he wrote uh, meditations. He, had wrote, he, he was quite a, he was very interested in the Jewish religion. According to one tradition, he actually secretly um, converted to Judaism. But either way, he definitely had many scholarly discussions with Rebbe, and many of them are recorded in the Talmud, sometimes even winning over Rebbe's opinion, Rebbe accepting his opinion, uh, the opinion of Antoninus. So there's, it's fascinating the different uh, discussions that they had, Antoninus, and uh, the Midrash brings that during that time, during those three days that Rebbe's mother was in the court and, and um, had, had this boy Antoninus with her, she obviously fed him and she nursed him. And the Jewish milk, that kosher milk that, that he was fed as a youngster, had that impact on him. And he was a, 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 a um, great leader towards, a great, um, you know, towards the Jewish people, giving them, giving them the, their, their place and tranquility and being interested in the study of Torah. So the Midrash points out, you see here how great of an impact um, kosher food can have. And, um, you know, as a as a tribute, sort of, to that, to that milk, that kosher milk. Good afternoon, Gail. Okay, so we're continuing on uh, with source number five. Just one, one of the interactions that Rebbe had with uh, Antoninus, whether it's Antoninus Pius or Marcus Aurelius, uh, I believe in Rome till today, uh, there is a column for Marcus Aurelius, just the way the Talmud describes it, I think it fits more with the personality of Marcus Aurelius. And there's a column, a huge column, uh, I don't know, about 100 feet high, I think, um, about the accomplishments, the achievements, the battles that he won, uh, Marcus Aurelius. But this is the man, he was a real man, he, you know, he existed, and if you ever go to Italy and Rome, you can see some of his accomplishments. I'm not sure if they have his uh, discussions with Rebbe, but the Talmud tells us about it. So one time, Rebbe invited him, they had a really close relationship, they were, they were friendly and, and over at each other, over... Uh, all the time, and Rebbe once invited him for a meal. It was it was a uh, was a, a hot meal that he, uh, excuse me a cold meal because it was Shabbos. It was Shabbos, and it's harder to have hot food on Shabbos. And and Antoninus ate, and and then during the week, he another time he had a meal, and the food was hot. And Antoninus turns to Rebbe and he says, "Source five, Antoninus said." The cold food on Shabbos tasted better to me than these hot foods. What happened? How come on Saturday on Shabbos the food was so delicious, even though it was cold, but during the week it's hot, but it's, something is missing? So Rebbe explained that the warm weekday food was missing a single spice. Something missing, there was a spice missing from the food. That's why it doesn't taste so good, even though it's hot. Said Antoninus, is a spice missing? Is there anything in the king's treasury that is lacking? You know, I'll give it to you. How can there something be lacking that, uh, you know, I'm your good friend. I'll give you any spice that you're lacking. What is it? Let's put it into the food and it'll taste good, just like it did on Shabbos. Said, Rebbe, the food was missing Shabbos. Do you have Shabbos in your treasury? Shabbos was the food. You know why the cold food, even though it was cold on Shabbos, it tasted so delicious? Because it was made in honor of Shabbos. It was made, it was a Shabbos food, and there's something special, there's something yummy and delicious about the food that has the Shabbos spice. The weekday food, it was hot, but it, doesn't have, it wasn't Shabbos, it wasn't in honor of Shabbos, and, 
and that was missing, that was lacking. So you see here these stories, yes it's stories about Rebbe, but it's stories that we're finishing right here in the first section tells us about the, the, the courage of the Jewish people, of Rabbi Yehuda's father, Rabbi Shimon, to perform a circumcision for their son no matter what was happening. A bris is a bris. A circumcision is a circumcision no matter how um, risky it was. And we see the beauty of Shabbos, the food that is, uh, that is made for Shabbos, cooked for Shabbos, has something special to it. Move on to section number two, uh, continuing um, <clears throat> here. The section is called Wealth. Rebbe was extremely, extremely wealthy. You know, there was this couple, Mr. Goldberg, gets married to Mrs. Goldberg, she becomes Mrs. Goldberg, and they're on their, just got married, they're on, they're on their way to their new home, a beautiful uh, mansion, and Mr. Goldberg turns to the new Mrs. Goldberg and says, would you have married me if my father didn't leave me a fortune? Mrs. Goldberg responds, I would marry you no matter who left you a fortune. Okay, obviously that's, <laughs> that's just a little joke, but Rebbe was... Wealthy. We marry each other not because of external wealth. We marry because of internal wealth, because of the qualities that uh, our spouse um, has. But Rebbe was extremely wealthy, not because he was a rabbi, but because independently. And this, this takes us back to, let's look in source number six, to Rivka. Rivka, Rebecca, the wife of Yitzchak, of Isaac, Rebecca, finally, after 20 years of waiting, of marriage, being childless, finally she gives birth, or she's become, she becomes pregnant with, with uh, she becomes pregnant and she doesn't know what's going on. It feels like there's something strange about this pregnancy. And she goes to, to the yeshiva, or the, you know, the scholar that was there at the time, Shame, uh, oldest son of Noah, and he tells her, Source 6, two nations are in your womb. You don't just have one boy in there, one baby. You have two babies. You have twin boys. And they will become two nations. Who were they? They were Yaakov and Esau. Jacob, the father of the Jewish people. And Esau, Esau who settled in, uh, whose descendants were so associated with Rome. The Romans, the Roman Empire, they are the founders or the, the, the region is, is associated to Esau, to Jacob's twin. Torah says, Esav hu Edom. Esav is Rome. Edom means, in Hebrew, Rome is called Edom, which means red. Esav was red, haired, and so on. So Rebbe was a descendant of Yaakov, the Jewish rabbi, and, and uh, Antoninus, his non-Jewish friend, before he converted, if he did, was the Roman emperor, was a descendant of Esau. They were cousins. So, continuing in source 6, says the Gemara, says the Talmud, do not read it as Goyim. Hayana. We're learning here on a weekly lunch and learn. Do not read it as Goyim. The word in Hebrew, when it says two nations are in your womb, it says Goyim. A Goyim means a nation. Goyim means nations. Other nations. Referred to, you know, sometimes as Goyim, the other nations besides the Jewish nation. But goyim could also refer to the Jewish people. A goyim means a nation. The Jewish people are also referred to as, as a nation. Do not read it as goyim, because in the Torah there are no um, vowels. Do not read it as goyim, meaning nations. Rather, read it as geim. 
meaning proud ones. Someone who is proud is called Ge'eh. Ge'im in plural, the proud ones. This verse was fulfilled in two prominent individuals who descended from Rivka, Antoninus, and Rebbe. They were both descendants of Rivka from our two twin boys, Rebbe and Antoninus. They were game, they were proud, they were prominent people. The Roman emperor and the leader of the Jewish people at the time, during the second century, Rebbe was extremely wealthy. They were, they were prominent at... It's described how, how uh, even seasonal foods, like there was lettuce and cucumbers, it says all kinds of foods were on their table at all, at all seasons of the year. There was nothing that was lacking. There was a true fulfillment as the two proud ones will descend. It took uh, 1,500 years or more, 1,800 years since, since uh, Rivka's uh, this prophecy, what's going to happen. But Rebbe and Antoninus was part of, all part of the plan. Source 7. From the days of Moshe until the days of Rabbi Yehuda, we do not find unparalleled greatness in Torah knowledge and unparalleled greatness in secular matters, including wealth and high political office, combined in one single individual. Since the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, that's 1500 years till the 2nd century Rebbe, we do not find in those 1500 years any one individual who led the Jewish people so... Um, such a vast knowledge of Torah as well as high political office as, as well being prominent like Moses. Moses we know, we know was, the, was the ultimate Jewish leader and the, 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 you know, the one who wrote the, the written Torah from God. And we'll see Rebbe was the one responsible for the recording of the oral Torah. They were both extremely wealthy. Moses we know was wealthy uh, when he brought up the slabs of stone for God to... Uh, inscribed the Ten Commandments on them. It was a sapphire stone that God showed him in the cave and Moshe got wealthy from the leftovers of that stone that was not used for the tablets. Moses was wealthy, Rebbe was wealthy, but of course he used his wealth not for his personal gain and personal benefit, for good purposes. Hi, uh, Eric. We're on the source sheet, source number eight, just describing his wealth the stableman of the house of Rabbi Yehuda was wealthier than the King Shapur of Persia. Heard of Shapur the Great, the uh, Persian king, the kings of Iran uh, during the, the first centuries, the th second, third, fourth centuries. Due to Rabbi Yehuda's Hanasi's abundant life, life, livestock, he had tons of animals and he was wealthy not because uh, he did fundraising and not because of being being the greatest rabbi, but because of his lifestyle, because of, you know, before anything to do with that. When the statement would place uh, fodder before the livestock, livestock, the sound of their lowing would travel the distance of three mil. Just the Talmud describing that three mil, mil is like a, I think it's like a Roman actually, a measure, measurement of, of area. It's about, it's used a lot in Talmud and Halakha. A mil is probably about two thirds of a mile. So let's say three mil is two miles or so. Two miles away from Rebbe's house, Rebbe's uh, barns, uh, they were able to hear when it was time for them to eat, they were able to hear their mowing, their, 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 moaning, their lowing, their noise. That's how much livestock he has. Well, Rebbe was extremely, extremely um, wealthy. A very prominent man, respected by all, by Jews, by non-Jews, especially by the Roman Emperor Antoninus or Marcus Aurelius. 
But, but nonetheless, Rebbe's life was not always so blissful. He suffered a lot. For 13 years of his life, he suffered greatly. Why did it come upon him? Or how did it come upon him? How did it start? And how did it end? Talmud records these stories. Source number 9. A certain calf was being led to slaughter. He had lots of calves, and one of them was being led to slaughter. The calf hung its head on the corner of Rebbe's garment and was weeping. They didn't want to go. We realized what's going on. Rebbe said to it, Go, as you were created for this purpose. People will, you know, eat your meat, excuse me, and have energy and be able to do good things. It was said in heaven, Since it was not compassionate, since he was not compassionate toward the calf, let afflictions come upon him. Let him feel what it's like a little bit. So obviously we're allowed to slaughter calf, but here the calf was like clinging to him. It was something... Uh, unique, something not common, and yet he pushed it to get slaughtered. God said in heaven, let him feel a little pain, let him feel some pain, some afflictions, and he began to suffer greatly. How did it end? Source 10. One day, the maidservant of Rebbe was sweeping his house. There were young weasels lying about, and she was in the process of sweeping them out and throwing them out. Rebbe Yehuda said to her, let them be. Just like God is, is merciful on all of his creatures, he provides for them, we shall do the same. They said in heaven, since he was compassionate, we shall be compassionate on him. Obviously, Torah chooses to tell us these stories to teach us how we should live our lives, how we should be kind to God's creatures and um, learn from their ways. Source 11. One might think that Rebbe was so wealthy, he indulged and enjoyed these material you know, enjoyments. The Talmud tells us, at the time of the death of Rebbe, he raised his ten fingers toward heaven and said in prayer, Master of the universe, it is revealed and known before you that I toiled with my ten fingers in the Torah, and I have not derived any benefit from the world, even with what my small finger, even as Pinky said, I haven't derived any benefit. All of the wealth, all of the great uh, possessions that I have were all used for good purposes. Rebbe was extremely charitable. He, was, he supported the Jewish settlement, the Jewish community in the land of Israel. He fed the poor during times of hunger when there was a, a, um, a drought or a hunger in the land. He used his wealth not for his personal gain, not for his personal enjoyment and benefit. He said... God, you know all my ten fingers. They did not benefit anything personally. It was all for God's sake. It was all for a good purpose for the divine plan. Now we know a little bit about Rebbe. We know a little bit about Rabbi Yehuda or Judah the Prince. We're going to move on to uh, turn the page, describe his passing, and then we'll focus in on his teachings and on his achievements. So Rebbe lived in a, clay, a place called Bet Sha'arim, a city called Bet Sha'arim that's in the, the lower Galil, Galil, in Israel, in the north of Israel, north, I think it's north, um, um, east of Israel, in Israel, the top of Israel, towards the east, city of Gal, in the in the region of Galil, and the city of Bet Sha'arim. Bet Sha'arim means the city of gates. Perhaps there was a gate protecting the city, a wall. That's where Rebbe lived. Actually, when he got ill, the doctors, uh, and, and where he passed away, they, he was advised to move to Tsipori. Tsipori 
was more on the mountains and was more eerie, it was more of a breeze and was a better place for him with all of his illnesses. Source 12. At the time of the passing of Rebbe. So Rebbe was born about the year 135 or so, passed away at the beginning of the, sec- of the 3rd century. Some say he lived long till about 220, some say a little earlier, a little later uh, of the common era. At the time of the passing of Rebbe, we're at source number 12, he said, I need my sons, call in my sons. His sons entered his room. Rebbe had two sons. He had a son, one son, his name was Rabbi Shimon, and one son was Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel was the one who succeeded him in becoming the Nasi in the next generation. His other son, Rabbi Shimon, also attained a uh, position. Rabbi included everything, all positions. He was the head of the yeshiva, he was the political leader, he was the, the spiritual leader. But his sons, he instructed them, so he, his sons entered his room. He said to them as a last will and testament, Be careful with the honor of your mother. After my passing, after his passing, be careful with her honor. And the Talmud goes on to say, why does he have to tell them that? He was, these were great rabbis. And to honor your mother and father, that's part of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Why does he have to instruct them? And the Talmud concludes that actually his wife at the time was not the biological mother of his boys, of his sons. His wife had passed away earlier, their mother. And this was his second wife. Maybe she raised them, maybe she... Either way, Rebbe told them, even after he pa- their, your father passes on, you should continue to honor her. Not just because during my lifetime she was my wife. Even after Rebbe's passing, he instructed them to be careful, to honor her, to pay respect to her, and to be careful, his words were, be careful with the honor of your mother. Something that he uh, found important to instruct his sons before his passing. Source 13. When Rabbi Yehuda fell ill, Rabbi Chia, another great rabbi of the time, entered to be with him. And he found him crying. He found Rebbe crying. He said to him, My teacher, for what reason are you crying? Rebbe, my teacher, Rabbi Yehuda, why are you crying? Isn't it taught? If one dies while laughing, it is a good sign for him. Shows that he's happy. He has, he has accomplished. He lived a full life. And, it is, and if while crying, it is a bad sign for him. So why are you crying? It would be a good sign if you would be laughing, but crying. You lived a full life, you accomplished so much. Were you crying? Obviously they felt that his time was near, his end was near. Rabbi Yehuda said to him, I am crying not because of my life. I am crying for the Torah and for mitzvahs that I will be unable to fulfill after I die. The opportunity, the privilege to be able to study Torah, to be able to fulfill a mitzvah, to wrap tefillin, to light Shabbos candles, to affix a mezuzah, to do a kind uh, deed, to do something good, to say a kind word to somebody, to help a poor man. Those things do not exist in the world to come. Yes, there is a world. The souls continue to exist, but they do not have bodies. There's no honoring parents. There's no saying Shema. We don't have, they don't have mouths. The Torah and mitzvahs is unable to be fulfilled in the heaven. And that is what he said he was crying about. Yes, he lives a full life, but he is sad that he will soon no longer have the opportunity to study Torah and do mitzvahs. This is so profound. It teaches us 
how we should cherish the life that we're given in this world. Every moment is another opportunity to fulfill God's will and f- form a connection with God in the greatest way. Source 14. Finally, it was time for Rebbe to die, for Rebbe to pass on. And the rabbis didn't want to let him go. Rebbe, the great man, the great teacher, the holy master. How could they let him go? So what do the rabbis do? Source 14. The sages decreed a fast. A fast day. Everyone should fast. Everyone should pray. And did not. No one should stop praying. Just pray, 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 pray. And then if we're praying the whole time, then God won't be able to take him away because we're constantly praying. And did not refrain from begging for mercy so that Rabbi Yehuda would not die. Look at that. The power of prayer. So what did his maid do? Rebbe's maid, by the way, she was very... She was a... very knowledgeable in Hebrew. It says, Rebbe spoke a beautiful Hebrew. Lashon uh, Kodesh, the modern, the ancient holy tongue. He also spoke Greek. He said those were the two um, languages that were, were, were good to, for one to speak. And his maid knew a lot of Hebrew. The rabbis would go to, she, she was in the house all the time. They would ask her how to say this, how to say that. So she tending to, to Rebbe, being in his house, saw his pain, saw how he would have to go often to, to the bathroom and how he would keep putting on his tefillin back. He saw, she saw that, she's, that he's in a lot of pain. Very difficult for him. And the rabbis are busy praying. And as long as they're praying, he's going to be here and he's going to continue to suffer. So what did she do? Continuing in source 14, his maid took a jug and threw it from the roof to the ground. She went up to the roof, she threw it on the ground and it smashed and made a big noise. Due to the sudden noise, the sages were momentarily silent and Rabbi Yehuda died. Hi, Neil. And the only way for Rebbe to pass on, the Talmud tells us, is if they cease to pray. As long as they were praying for their Rabbi, for Rabbi Yehuda to continue to live, to continue to be here for his soul, to continue to be united with his body, then there was no way that he's going to be taken away. For the Malach HaMavis, for the angel of death to, to approach him, there had, to be, there had to be a break in the prayers. And this maid understood it. Think about the way the spirituality people were so you know, entrenched in, in this. This was part of life. And she knew how, how are you going to stop, the, how, are you gonna, how is she going to let the heavenly angels take up Rebbe for him to pass? By stopping the prayers. And how did she do that? By smashing a jug for a moment from the, from the shock of the noise, they stopped praying, and that is when he, was pa- he passed. Rebbe was buried in Beit Sha'arim. Beit Sha'arim, Beit Sha'arim, as you mentioned, is the city where, where Rebbe lived. That was the, the, the center of the Sanhedrin, the, the high court in the second century, beginning of the third century. And for many years, his grave was unknown. In the early 1900s, a early 1900s and then uh, I think it was more in the, in the 1930s there was uh, I think his name was Mr. Alexander um, Zaid and he was in the area and he came upon a cave and this cave led to another cave and eventually a entire necropolis which means a, a, a an ancient cemetery carved out um, in stone from you know underground caves 
was excavated. Today, uh, it's considered a what's called a world world uh, heritage site, something like that. Um, a magnificent complex of a network of of caves and tunnels in Betsharim in, in the Lower Galil, and over there is where they found over 130. Um, graves. Now the graves are not typical graves that are buried in the ground, but it's more um, sarcophagus. A sarcophagus is like a, a stone coffin that they would just put in the cave. And and these sarcophaguses, if that's the right way, way, way to pronounce it, were of, many of them are of wealthy people because the inscriptions, the design, they're adorned with, with lions and you can you know, see these things, videos of this online of, of, of these, of these um, coffins. Uh, apparently it was the custom that they would, after some time, they would gather the, the remains from the stone coffin and, and put it somewhere, somewhere uh, else uh, in a smaller place. But either way, so in this cave, one of these many caves, and I'll just show you a picture here, how well it was preserved. And, and um, one of the caves, just show you uh, one picture here. You see here um, a archway, a beautiful preserve from 1800 years ago. Look at these, look at the stone or these stone doors. And these doors actually, actually work till today. And this is just one picture. There are, there are many beautiful uh, things that were, that were found and excavated. And in this cave, uh, though we don't have an inscription for Rabbi Yehuda himself, but they found three stones in there. Three of the... First of all, there's menorahs carved out there. There's the lula from many Jewish symbols in there. It's just magnificent, fascinating. It just takes you back in time. But as we began here, I printed out a one of the stones that are what's called a kuch in, in, in Talmudic terminology, where they would place um, the remains of of the of the deceased. Eventually, you have here three. Uh, the top line is in Hebrew. Zu, it's a Zion Vav, Shel, Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel was a son of Rabbi Yehuda. And it says this is of Rabbi Gamliel. The stone right there near, the, near that sarcophagus, near that, near that um, a grave, near that coffin, the stone coffin, says this is of Rabbi Gamliel. I don't think anybody else... Um, Recently, would, would, this, would this be connected to Rabbi Gamliel? And we know that Rabbi was buried in Bet Sha'arim, in this place. And another stone said, this one is Rabbi Shimon. You can see it online, I didn't print it out. Rabbi Shimon was Rabbi's other son. And another stone says, Anina. Anina was one of Rabbi's disciples who Rabbi instructed to, to be appointed to the head of the yeshiva. These inscriptions were found on the stones. And although there is no inscription for Rebbe, but actually the Talmud says, the Jerusalem Talmud says that Rebbe instructed, this shows how humble Rebbe was, even though he was so wealthy, he, he instructed that his grave should not be in a stone coffin above ground, but it should be in the ground. And they found there two graves in a beautiful uh, part of the cave that are 
buried uh, you know, in the ground, just sand, which is, which is different than all the rest of them. And that apparently is the grave of Rabbi Yehuda because you know, the rich people had these stone sarcophaguses and they were adorned with lions and all kinds of you know, carvings, which was very expensive. And that would make sense for Rabbi Yehuda himself but to have that. But poor people didn't, uh, couldn't afford that. They would just be buried in the ground. Maybe a stone put on top. But Rebbe requested to be buried that way. So this man that we're learning about, Rebbe Yehuda, who passed away in the beginning of the 3rd century, his grave can be visited. And these inscriptions are just amazing. Just amazing what the archaeologists, what they excavate. And these doors, you know, these doors, these arches, these caves, just brings to real life. Jews lived there. Jews lived in these places. They lived during the Roman... The Roman um, uh, empire when they extended the Roman rule over the land of Israel and it's just fascinating you can check it up after Bet She'arim okay let's move on to our fourth section here um, source number 15 so Rebbe let's talk about Rebbe being Rebbe being a teacher a Rav Rebbe as a youngster, studied from all the great students of Rabbi Akiva. We mentioned Rabbi Akiva. Rebbe uh, absorbed the Torah from all of Rabbi Akiva's students, who were the, Rabbi Akiva was the greatest teacher of his time, as well as from his father, Rabbi Shimon, who was the Nasi, the head of the court at the time. Rabbi Yehuda, after his father's passing, was appointed the head of the yeshiva, the head of the, the Nasi, the high court. And really... The, the, the Jewish, you know, the representative of the Jewish people to the Romans. To, he was the, the leader of the Jewish people. Beloved by all. Rebbe established a yeshiva in Bet Sharim. And that's actually what they found. You know, the yeshiva in those days, there was like uh, rows and rows of students. And they found you know, everything was made out of stone back then. So it's hard to destroy such, such, uh, such things to the ground. So a lot of it, remnants are, are, can be uncovered. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of uh, archaeological finds or active sites in Israel. Just magnificent. Something that really fascinates me, the things that they found. Um, just, uh, I'll share some more after when, when we're finished, if we have time. So, Rebbe established a yeshiva, the yeshiva, the central yeshiva in Bet Sharim. And source number 15 much Torah, Rebbe said, much Torah have I studied from my teachers. And I have learned more from my colleagues than from them. And I have learned more from my students than from all of them. Look at that. Look how humble Rebbe was. He says, I learned from my teachers, but my colleagues, when I analyzed the text with them, what, I, what we studied from our teachers, when I debated it, it was sharpened, the, the points were brought out clear or clarified. I learned more from my colleagues than from my actual teachers, but even more from my students. He allowed his students to question, to counter him. And through that, the text, the topics were clarified, were, were sifted through and became clear. I learned more from my students. Some teachers stand above the, the, the student, not uh, acknowledging perhaps another point of view Rebbe said, I have learned more, from my, more than from my teacher than from my colleagues. I learned the most from my students. It's good to ask questions. It's good to, to analyze. 
uh, and in a respectful way to, to debate. Source 16. What was Rebbe's greatest accomplishment in his teachings was a book, a set of books called the Mishnah. The Mishnah, what's the Mishnah? So briefly, source number 16. From the days of Moshe until Rabbi Yehuda, no one had composed a text for the purpose of teaching the oral law in public. Okay, so we are, we are aware, we mentioned more than once in our, in our lessons that there are two parts to Torah. Torah was given in two forms, in two parts. One was the written law given to, from God to Moses to, to, to transcribe, to record the written law, the Chumash, the five books of Moses, eventually the books of the prophets and the writings, the scriptures. Moses wrote one for each of the tribes, one he placed in the center in the tabernacle near the ark for reference. No mistakes should come about. <coughs> Together with this, what's called the Torah Shebechsav, the written law, was the oral law, the explanations that God gave Moses, the, tr the, tr the, the commentary to the Torah, uh, the explanation, the details of the mitzvahs, the reasons, many, many extra details that uh, without them we would not be able to understand the Torah. To give some examples, the Torah says not to do work on Shabbos. What exactly is the definition of malacha, of work? What is tefillin? To put a sign on your arm. What exactly is the sign? Black, square, straps, what parchments are written inside, how it should be sewn, where it should be placed, all the details, kosher, how it should be slaughtered, what it, you know, all the details uh, that go into kosher and, and any other mitzvah basically has to rely on the oral tradition. This oral tradition, the oral law, was passed down and there was a reason why it was set up in this way. We had another whole lesson dedicated to it, uh, primarily or one of the reasons given was in order that there should be a relationship between teacher and student, not just you look at the book, because the, the text is never going to be clear enough. The text is, uh, you know, look at the Constitution. We're always debating what exactly does this clause mean, and this thing and that thing. So you need to have a teacher, and that's why it's oral. But either way, for about 1,500 years, till the times of Rebbe, there was no text, official text of the oral law. It was meant to be that way, that the oral law was given over by tradition, passed over from teacher to student. The Jewish people would go to the yeshivas, and they would memorize, and they would study all of the laws, all of the teachings, all of the explanations of the written law, which is sort of like the notes, just the notes, the basics, the, the idea. Continuing in Source 16, each individual would write notes for himself of what he heard regarding the explanation of the Torah, its laws, and the new concepts that were deduced in each generation, how they applied it to different cases, and the different laws that were enacted based on the teachings of the Torah. That's the way it was for many years, from the days of Moshe until Rabbi Yehuda. Source 17, Rabbi Yehuda... Rabbi Yehuda, in his times, things changed. He collected all the teachings, all the laws, all those personal notes, and all the explanations that were heard from Moshe and which were taught by the courts in each generation. From all these, he composed the text of the Mishnah. He taught it to the sages in public and revealed it to the Jewish people who all wrote it down, the entire text. They spread it in all places that the oral law would not be forgotten. Rebbe, for this purpose, convened 
all of the leading rabbis of the time, all the sages, all the scholars, and they clarified, and they things that were up for discussion, there were different opinions, they debated, they took a vote, and they went by the majority, and everything became crystal clear and recorded in the Mishnah. Not, the, not, in a, not every single aspect of Jewish law was there, but the basics, I would say, and he divided this into Mishnah. Mishnah is, uh, means uh, teachings, and it was organized, he organized it in six volumes. Six categories of Jewish law. The first one is Zeroyim, which talks about laws of blessings and prayers and agriculture, things associated with the, with tithing and the laws of the of, of growing, the, working the land. The second section is Moed, which is times that deals with the laws of Shabbos and holidays, Pesach and Sukkot and and, and 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 Yom Kippur and so on. Um, Paso, yeah, the third section is Nashim, women, which deals with. Uh, marriage and divorce and, and vows and uh, laws of Nazareth, Nazareth the next and, and ketubah, contract, marriage contracts. The fourth section is zikin. Zikin is damages, uh, you know, um, law between uh, damages and, and uh, criminal law, laws between man and his friend. And fourth section is Kachin, the laws of the temple, the sacrifices, and the sixth section, the sixth category is Taros, the laws of purity. And each of these sections, these six sections, has tractates, a total of 60 or 63, depending how it's counted, tractates. Each, each of these tractates have chapters. Each of these chapters have Mishnahs, uh, you know, paragraphs. And this is the Mishnah. The Mishnah Rebbe recorded. The Mishnah is written very extremely concise, precise, and perfect Hebrew and very, very uh, specific how the order, what comes before what, and who is recorded, how he's recorded, with his name, without his name. So many, so many details. And the Talmud is explanation of the Mishnah. Why did Rabbi do this? Source 18, he saw that the students becoming, they saw the students becoming fewer, new difficulties constantly arising, the Roman Empire spreading itself throughout the world and becoming more powerful and the Jewish people wandering and becoming dispersed to the far ends of the world. Therefore, he composed a single text that would be available to everyone so that it could be studied quickly and would not be forgotten. It used to be a Jewish people were living in communities and they were able to be in the yeshivas and study and study and memorize all of these oral laws. But it was coming a point, Rebbe saw that the Jewish people were beginning to disperse more and more and more and they will be forgotten. All of these laws would, would be forgotten because there's no central uh, base of, of, of teaching, of teachers. And therefore he recorded the Mishnah and he had it written down and disseminated and everybody would follow, would be, have, have a proper recording of the Mishnah. In a sense, he saved the future of the Jewish people, of the, of, the, of the Torah. The Mishnah. The Mishnah is a precious book, set of books. And it is, you can say, you have the written law, you have the Torah, and you have the oral law, which was transcribed by... Rebbe. Rebbe, uh, Rebbe's generation concluded an era called Tanaim. Tanaim are the Tanai, the Mishnaic sages, the sages who are recorded in the Mishnah. After him came the Amoraim. Those are the sages who studied the Mishnah and analyzed the Mishnah and eventually, you know, 300 years later, in about 500 CE, it was written up in the Talmud, which are the discussions of the, of the Amoraim, the sages following the Mishnah, studying the Mishnah. 
after the Talmud came the Geonim. The Geonim were those that analyzed and continued to teach based on the Talmud. Until the Rishonim, who are Maimonides and Rashi, who put commentaries on the Talmud. Uh, and then came the Acharonim, who, uh, like the ones who wrote the Code of Jewish Law and so on, who, you know, different eras of Jewish, of Jewish um, scholarship. And each group is, uh, the further you go back, the more prominence and more, more um, importance, if you can say, they have. So Rebbe recorded the Mishnah. He redacted the Mishnah. Source number, not, where are we? Source number 19. Mishnah, or Mishnayos. You know, as a child, growing up in Toronto, in our school... In our, in our yeshiva, in our cheder, every year they would have, for a couple of months of a year, a, 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 what would they call it, a campaign called Mishnayos Balpeh, to study Mishnah by heart. Now, to study the whole Mishnah, it's a lot. But, one chapter, one, one tractate, one volume, some people went so far to study the entire Mishnah by heart. I got almost to finishing one whole volume, which is about 10 tractates, to studying the Mishnah word by word, to studying it by heart. Not something we usually do for Torah. Torah we don't study by heart. Uh, but Mishnah is studied by heart. And this has been a you know, Jewish tradition, to study Mishnah by heart, word for word. And I still remember some of it. You can start tractate Brachos, the first tractate, of, of the first volume. When does one read the Shema? When does the time to fulfill the mitzvah of reading Shema? You see, the Torah says we should say Shema. Comes the Mishnah and teaches us, wait a second, when exactly is the time to read the Shema? It says in the, in the Torah that we should say the Shema when we lie down. So what if I go to sleep early at 6 o'clock in the afternoon and it's still light outside? Do I say Shema? What if I go to bed 3 in the morning? When is the precise time, the mitzvah, to say the Shema? So the Mishnah deals with that. But many, especially children, will review the words and memorize the words. And every line that we learned by heart, you get a certain amount of money. And there was a whole contest. Everybody was up on the chart. How much everybody studied by heart. And then you would have a test. Somebody, a rabbi would come and he would spot check you. And you open the page here and start saying words. And you have to continue the words of Mishnah. One of the ideas of the words of Mishnah is that the words of Mishnah, the words of Torah, the law, should be ingrained in a child's mind or ingrained in a person's mind to the point that wherever he or she is, they can think words of Torah. They don't have to have a book. They don't have to have a phone to look at with an app or a text. Wherever they are, they can say words of Torah. They can bring purity by uttering words of Torah. Wherever a person goes, they are purifying the air. They are bringing spirituality to wherever they are. And a person's mind can constantly be studying and thinking about saying words of Torah, especially a child who's very impressionable. Source 19, it's one quote from the previous rabbi who really campaigned about this in the early years, in the 40s, when he came here to America. Everyone should study some Mishnah by heart, repeating them while walking in the street. Every single Mishnah that one reviews from memory, wherever they may be, lights up the connection between the Jewish people and God. The word Mishnah has the same, shares the same letters as Nishama. This is fascinating. Nishama, a Jewish soul, Nishama. Four Hebrew letters, Nun, Shin, Mem, Hey. If you mix the letters around, comes Mishnah. 
Mishnah and the Neshama, the Jewish soul, in this book of oral law of the Torah, they share the same letters. They're somehow connected. When we study Mishnah, then it lights up our Neshama. Actually, before, many have the custom to, to say Kaddish. Before the saying the Kaddish in memory of somebody, they say some, some paragraphs of Mishnah because Mishnah is associated with the soul, with the Neshama. Mishnah is holy. It's like a holy text composed by Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda, Judah the Prince. Let's conclude with some actual teachings of Rebbe. Source 20, consider the loss. We'll look at three teachings. Number one, Source 20, consider the loss incurred when performing a mitzvah against its reward and the gain obtained by committing a sin against the loss it incurs. If you are worried, comment there, the Bartonur explains this teaching of Rebbe. If you are worried about the monetary loss or inconvenience incurred by the fulfillment of a mitzvah, consider its reward, which far exceeds the loss. The physical and spiritual damage caused by the sin far outweighs the temporary pleasure it provides. It can be expensive to give your child a Jewish education. It's not free. It can be expensive to buy an estrog for their four kinds to shake on sukkahs, to build a sukkah, to buy matzah, to buy kosher for Passover foods, or in general, kosher foods can be more expensive than others, than the non-kosher foods. To not work on Shabbos, sometimes that can be a challenge because it can be a, a, a day of good income to give charity. So to do a mitzvah, Rebbe tells us, yes, there might be a loss, a temporary loss, there might be an inconvenience, but consider, don't consider that against the reward, the reward of fulfilling this mitzvah. That is eternal. That is beyond anything. The reward is infinite. Fulfilling God's will, fulfilling our purpose, our mission, why we were created. And a sin, perhaps, is very enticing, and there is pleasure. But think about the damage that is caused, spiritual damage, the... Uh, uh, that is caused by a sin, it may be temporarily pleasurable, but the stain, the effect, is far, the, the loss far exceeds that temporary uh, pleasure. That's one teaching of Rebbe. Another teaching, Source 21, reflect upon three things and you will not come to sin. Know what is above you. Eye that sees, an ear that hears, and that all your deeds are recorded in a book. Nothing goes on unnoticed. God is watching. His eyes are open. His ears are open. He hears, he sees, and everything's being recorded. Nothing goes unseen. Not just because no one's watching, and not because nobody you think nobody hears. First of all, usually there's somebody watching. Even if you don't think someone's watching, somehow, you, somehow the person gets caught. All of a sudden, we find out this happened and that happened. It was a camera. Somehow it slipped after. But even if nobody is really watching, and there's no way for anyone to find out, Hashem is watching. God is watching us. Whatever we're doing, He's standing right by our side. Hashem needs of a love. God is standing right there. He's present. He is aware of each and every one of us, what we're doing, what are we thinking about, what decisions we make, the choices we make. God is always watching. Rebbe says, 
you want to refrain yourself from sinning, from doing the, making the right decisions, know that above you, God's eyes are open. His eyes, his ears are open. Everything is being recorded. Nothing goes unseen and unheard. Let's make the right decisions. And let's conclude with Source 22, Teaching of Rebbe. Rebbe regarded Torah study as something of utmost importance. Source 22, one may not interrupt school children from studying Torah even in order to build the temple. Now, Rebbe lived in the time after the destruction of the temple in the land of Israel. He felt uh, very acutely, I think that's the word, very real, in a very real way, he felt the loss of the temple. And you might say, well, Rebbe would say, if, if we have an opportunity to build a temple, everyone just stop doing whatever they're doing. Let all the school, everybody come and, and contribute to the building of the temple. Yet Rebbe said, What's even more important than building the temple, which is the house of for God, where God's presence will be felt and the sacrifices, offerings will be offered. Rebbe says, you know what's more important than that? That Jewish boys and girls should study Torah. Education. To studying Torah, that is more important to Rebbe. Rebbe taught, do not stop a child from studying Torah, even for something seemingly so important as building the temple. Children should be studying Torah. Children should be occupied. Not just children. Children of all ages. We should all continue to study. We're always like a, a child. that We have more to learn. More to learn. Torah study. Rebbe taught us the importance of Torah study. Rebbe enabled us to continue studying the Torah authentically. By recording. By preserving the oral law. By having it recorded. In his days. And because he lived... When there was a period of respite, there was a lull in the decrees of the Roman emperors in the times of Marcus Aurelius, Aurelius in the end of the second century. That is when the Mishnah was, was recorded. He, he uh, seized the opportunity to make a difference and preserve Torah for all future generations. And today, Jewish people around the world continue to study Mishnah continue to study the precise, the, the authentic uh, recording of the oral law back to Mount Sinai. Thanks to Rebbe. Next time you're in Israel, you can visit his gravesite in Bet Sharim. I was never there at that gravesite, but I would like to visit there next time I go. Bet Sharim, you can Google it and see some beautiful findings in Bet Sharim, just magnificent. The caves, the, the, the uh, designs, the carvings, Jewish symbols, the, you know, it was very... And, and these graves of, of his family, the, the royal family sort of of the, of the Jewish leader, there are lions and the sarcophagus is just designed and adorned. And Hebrew inscriptions from 1800 years ago, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Shimon, just um, amazing, just amazing and this is Rebbe. Rebbe lived in the 2nd century. Rebbe lived in the times of Marcus Aurelius, had a friendly relationship with him. Rebbe taught us Shabbos is the spice that makes our Shabbos food taste extra delicious. Rebbe's parents taught us to be courageous and do a mitzvah, even if sometimes it's inconvenient. As Rebbe concluded, saying, 
as we concluded Rebbe's teaching that even though it may be inconvenient, but look at the reward. Put that against, consider that against the reward, the reward for a mitzvah, which is infinite. It's the king of kings who commanded us, who gave us the instruction, the opportunity to, to, have, to, become, uh, to have a covenant with him, with the mitzvah of circumcision. Rebbe taught us that if you're wealthy, use it for good deeds, use it for good causes, and not to use it just for personal benefit, but to use it as Rebbe was able to say, to lift his ten fingers and say before his passing, God Almighty, you know that I didn't take any personal, I did not derive any personal benefit from all of this wealth. Wealth. He did it for, for a good purpose. He did it for a good cause. Rebbe's passing teaches us the power of prayer. Because they did not stop, as long as they did not stop praying, his demise cannot come. And Rebbe preserved the Torah for us. Rebbe taught us that he studied more from his students than from his teachers. Rebbe campaigns for Torah study like we do today, like we do every week. We study Torah together and I commend everybody for tuning on, tuning in, logging on, for studying Torah. These are stories that the, Torah, the Talmud records for us to learn from. Okay, now for the comments. If anybody has any comments or disagreements, questions, uh, you can post them now. And... Let's take a look. Uh, let's go back a little. Oh, no comments. Okay, so I guess everybody agrees. Once again, it's not my teaching. These are teachings of the Talmud. Um, but if anybody has something to add, uh, now would be a good time. Rebbe, Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Actually, the word Nasi, we mentioned that Yehuda was a descendant of Yaakov, of Jacob. And his... Uh, partner, if you can say, partner in leadership was Ant- Antoninus, Ant- Antoninus Pius, or the, the Roman emperor who was a descendant of Esav. Uh, the word Nasi, Nasi is three, four Hebrew letters, Nun, Shin, or Sin, Yud, Aleph. And uh, the, uh, the commentaries say that the word Nasi, Yehuda Hanasi, he's one of the only rabbis known as Judah the Prince, Judah the Nasi. And Nasi is an acronym for Nitzot Shel Yaakovinu, a spark of the soul of Jacob, our father. So we see a, a link to, to Yehuda. Yehuda is a lion. Yehuda in, in, Yehuda in Hebrew is uh, Yehuda, the son of Jacob, was given a blessing by Jacob as to be like a lion, to be a, a ruler. Uh, and uh, the people of the leaders actually... Rabbi Yehuda was a descendant of King David, who was a descendant of Judah, and <clears throat> Yehuda. I'll just say one more point here. Yehuda comes from the word Yehudim, or similar. Yehudim is the way the Jews are called, the the Judeans, the Jews. Why are we called Jews? Because we came from Judah. Uh, although he didn't live in Judah, he lived in the north of Israel, which was um, the, the Galil. But nonetheless, the Jews in that time, that era, f- came from Judah. And that's why we're called Jews. Judah, in Hebrew, is Yehudim. Yehud. Al-Yehud, I think in uh, Arabic. Yeah, Yehud is... Uh, is is uh, Jews in, in German you have the Yudin or in Yiddish the Yidin it's all the same word Yehudim 
And his name was Yehuda because he was a soul. By the, recording the Mishnah, he preserved this soul of Yehudim. Yehuda preserved the soul of Yehudim, of the Jewish people, by making the Torah accessible, the oral law, to not to be forgotten and to be remembered and studied by all Jewish people. Yehuda helped the Yehudim, he helped the Jewish people. Thank you for joining our weekly, our weekly, our weekly uh, Lunch and Learn. Um, we'll have another lunch and learn next week, God willing. And just take one more look here at this inscription. Now that you know his son's name, look at that. Just point out. You see here, this is um, Shin Lamid, Shin Shel, Reish Beis Reb, Rabbi, Gimel Mem Lamid, Gam Li Yud Aleph Lamid, Gam Li El, Rabbi Gam Li El. That's Rabbi Yehuda's son. Another one is Rabbi Shimon. So we have real life evidence. Have a wonderful rest of your day. It's a beautiful day outside today. And hope to see you next time when we uh, get together on Facebook. Enjoy the rest of your day and keep studying Torah. It's the best thing we can do.